Well, good evening. Our sermon text this evening is Judges chapter 9, rather lengthy chapter. For those of you who have not been here typically in the evenings, we're walking through the book of Judges. We are taking an overview of this chapter. I won't be able to speak about every detail. There's a lot of them, a lot of interesting details. My goal this evening, rather, is to give us an understanding of the way God has worked in ancient Israel and how he might do the same today. So let's read a portion, just a portion of this chapter. Let's begin actually towards the end of the chapter. We'll begin in verse 50. Hear now this, the word of the living God. Then Abimelech went to Thebes, and he encamped against Thebes and took it. But there was a strong tower in the city, and all the men and women, all the people of the city, fled there and shut themselves in. Then they went up to the top of the tower. So Abimelech came as far as the tower and fought against it, and he drew near the door of the tower to burn it with fire. But a certain woman dropped an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor-bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest men say of me, a woman killed him. So his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, they departed every man to his place. Thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech which he had done to his father by killing his 70 brothers. And all the evil of the men of Shechem, God returned on their own heads, and on them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. This is the word of the living God, and we say, thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful for justice this evening. You execute justice on the evildoer. You do not let evil go unpunished. You've seen to it that we remember this man, Abimelech, precisely for what he did not want to be remembered for. You have You've gotten victory over him just as you have over Satan through your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that we'll see this glory this evening, and I pray, too, that we'll know how to apply this story to our own lives. We pray this for your church's sake, for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've been reading the autobiography of a Scottish missionary named John Patton. John Patton was a Scottish missionary to the South Pacific, and it's maybe, next to the Bible, the most wonderful book. I'm only halfway through. Perhaps the most wonderful book I have yet read. He was a man of strong faith and a man who stood up to evil men He did so in Scotland, and then when he went overseas, he did the same thing. And uh, about a week or two ago, I was reading 
particularly interesting section of the book where he has to escape for his life. He escapes off the island, and a British ship comes and picks him up. Basically, the people whom he was ministering to, whom he was worshiping among, basically just, just pushed him off the island. His life was threatened, I don't know how many times. I began by highlighting, and then it just got too many. There were times where tribal peoples, they would trade with, with Europeans, and they had muskets. And there were times where a tribal man would just point the gun at Patton as Patton went about doing yard work and would just hold it at him. And he just would pray, knowing that his life was in the hands of our sovereign God. And he describes something about this particular people that he was ministering to called, I believe it's pronounced Nahak. Nahak is sorcery. And basically, the people whom he was ministering to have no idea of death occurring naturally. Every time someone dies, they would they would try to figure out why he or her died. And they would try to find the person who supposedly cursed the other person, and then they would take vengeance. When death occurs, they would avenge that death. And so, continuously, these island peoples were at war with one another, again and again and again. And then, after they would kill one another, they would eat the flesh. These were cannibals, and they would eat human flesh. And so this is the people group that he was ministering to. And there were other islands, and there were other missionaries on these nearby islands, and there was one particular couple. They were named the Gordons. They died at the hands of another tribe called the Aramagans. And the Aramagans murdered these missionaries, and news spread to all of the other islands. We killed our white people. We killed the missionaries. And so the tribe that Patton was that Patton was ministering to started a festival upon hearing the news, and they celebrated and they danced, and there was music, and there was feasting. Because they were celebrating. And Patton, not far away, hears of the festival, and they tell Patton, The Gordons have died, and we will see what happens to the Aramagans. And Patton was told, basically, that if something happened to that tribe whom killed the Gordons, then they would fear Patton. They would fear him because they would know that Patton's God was the true God. And so there was this waiting period. Would God strike down this tribal people who killed the Gordons? And they waited also for what they called men of war. These would be European ships to show up on their islands. Would anything happen to them? Because this is their belief. Interestingly, nothing happens to this tribal people, at least that Patton records. In fact, there are two, three, four, or more occasions where Patton directly tells the people when they're threatening his life that God is going to strike you down. He is going to punish you if you hurt me. And their response was, well, nothing happened to the Aramaeans when they killed the Gordons. And that was the refrain. And so justice was not brought about, at least 
Patton did not see justice brought about. This evening, we have Judges 9, and we see justice brought about. We see a wonderful, almost poetic justice brought about. My goal this evening, as I said, is not to cover every detail, but I want us to see the justice of God. But also, I want us to think about what has God actually promised the church? What does justice really look like for his people? So we'll consider this this evening. There are five headings, five brief headings. The first one is this, a king for fools. This is the first section. This is verses 1 to 6, a king for fools. So I'll pick this up. Remember, Abimelech is introduced at the end of the Gideon saga, at the end of chapter 8. We covered that last time. Let me read a few of these verses. Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, that's Gideon, he went to Shechem to his mother's brothers, and he spoke with them and with all the family of the house of his mother's father, saying, Please speak in the hearing of all the men of Shechem. Which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam reign over you, or that one reign over you? Remember that I am your own flesh and bone. You may recall from chapter 8 that Gideon did not end his race well. Gideon, whom saved Israel from the hands of the Midianites, he was not faithful at the end of his life. And God used him, but at the end he did not end well. And Gideon ended up with many wives, even concubines. He even had at least one foreign concubine, and that was something expressly forbidden in Scripture. And Abimelech, he is Gideon's son, and he is the son of a foreign concubine, a Canaanite. In verses 1 to 6 here, we learn that something more about Abimelech, whose name, by the way, means my father is king, and he takes that upon himself to try to become king, And Abimelech goes to his mother's family. He goes away from where his people were, where Gideon's people were, and he goes to Shechem. And notice there are 70 other sons of Gideon. Abimelech is just one. Abimelech goes to them and says, would you rather have 70 leaders or just one? Remember, I'm actually your flesh and blood. And so they gave him 70 shekels of silver. They liked the sounds of this. Yeah, let's have just one liter instead of 70. That's a false choice, by the way. They didn't have to choose one or the other. This is something that he presented. They give him money. Notice verse 4. These Shechemites take 70 shekels of silver from Baal Bareth, the temple. A false god. And with that money, they use it to hire vigilantes. And they kill his brothers, verse 5. Seventy brothers of Jeroboam are killed. All seventy of Gideon's sons are killed upon a great stone. And they gather together, and they make Abimelech king besides the terebinth tree at the pillar in Shechem. One escapes, that's Jotham. And it's him we hear from in verse 7. So Abimelech is a fool. That's what I'm calling him. And the Shechemites are fools. They despise God's wisdom. They're going after a false 
God. They are taking money from a false god's temple and murdering Gideon's family with it. They should be honoring Gideon. Instead, they're killing his sons. So our second heading, again, these are somewhat brief, a parable for fools. There are two sons of Gideon left. There's Jotham and there's Abimelech. And Jotham, now he escapes and he goes and he stands on top of Mount Gerizim. This is verse 7. And he lifted his voice and he cries out and he says to them, Listen to me, you men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. And then he gives them this parable. And the parable is about a group of trees. And the trees go out to find a tree to be king among them all. And there is something silly about trees wanting a king to reign over them as if he's the best of the trees. Trees do not need a king. The Israelites neither need a king. Remember Deuteronomy 17, God alone chooses the king of Israel. And up until this point, Israel has no king. Abimelech has taken it upon himself to be king. He's wrongly doing that. He's a fool. There is no worthy reason for them to go about looking for one. These trees are like a mob of men. First they go to an olive tree, and the olive tree refuses the offer. He says, should I seize giving my oil with which they honor God and men and go to sway over the trees? So the olive tree refuses. And so the mob of trees goes to another tree. This time they go to a fig tree. You come, fig tree, and you reign over us. And the fig tree says, should I seize my sweetness and my good fruit and go to sway over trees? He refuses. They go to another. This time they go to a vine. It's kind of getting smaller and smaller. The vine also refuses. Should I seize my new wine, which cheers both God and men, and go to sway over trees? It's the olive tree, the fig tree, the vine. Notice they all have a sense of duty about them. There's a, there's a, moral, a moral clarity about them. Notice why each of them refuse the offer. Each of these trees has a God-ordained task for them to do. Why would they refuse the task God gave them to do to go reign over this mob of trees? The olive tree, well, he gives, he gives oil, and the oil honors God and men, he says. The vine, for instance, he makes wine, and it cheers God and men. Why would I stop doing that and go be a king? That's not what God has designed me to do. So you see, this parable has some wisdom, and Jotham is offering it. But the mob of trees lastly goes to the bramble. This was the mob's last choice. They didn't start out by asking the bramble. The bramble is lowly. The bramble responds, yes, however. And it comes with a condition. This is verse 15. If in truth, the bramble says, you anoint me as king over you, then come and take shelter in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Bramble's not good for much except burning. It's a shrub. It's briars. What tree can actually take shade under bramble? The tree should know better, but this is a foolish group of trees. And then there's the other part of 
the parable. This is verses 16 till 21. And here, I'm just going to summarize, Jotham explains quite directly what this parable is all about. You've probably already guessed. Jotham is using this parable of trees to describe what the Shechemites are like. The Shechemites are out, and they are wanting to anoint a king over them. And who? Who is it that they've anointed? It's Abimelech. Jotham gives them a prophetic warning. If you've acted well toward the house of Gideon, then rejoice. But if you have not, then let a curse be upon you. May Abimelech be a source of punishment, like bramble that catches fire and devours you for putting him king over you. And may you also, men of Shechem, be a source of fire that divorces Ab- that, that, that burns Abimelech. Jotham is not uncertain. He already knows that the mob has chosen wrongly. And verse 19 tells us that Gideon's family was not honored in, all of, in, in light of all that he had done for Israel. Jotham knows this. Seventy of, of Jotham's brothers were killed. He's the last of the family. He knows they have acted wickedly. And this is said as a, as a prophecy towards them. It's, it's almost as if Jotham is saying, may this happen. In verse 21, Jotham runs away out of fear of being killed by his brother Abimelech. And now we have the next section. This is the lengthiest of the sections. Our third heading, a war between fools. A war between fools. This stretches basically from 22 to 49. A new man comes into this story. I'm going to pick it up in verse 26. This is Gaal, the son of Ebed, came with his brothers and went over to Shechem. And the men of Shechem put their confidence in him. So this new player comes to the Shechemites and he stirs up some some controversy. Verse 27, they go to the house of their God and they eat and they drink and they curse Abimelech, their king. And Gael says, who is Abimelech? And who is Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jeroboam? So it's as if he's saying, Abimelech, he's, he's only a half-blood. See me, I'm full-blood. Why are you going to have this half-blood be king over you? He isn't Canaanite enough. He's still half Gideon's son, you remember? Can he really be trusted? So these people have taken shade under Abimelech and they want to chop him down already. And Abimelech will start a fire because that's what his type do. Abimelech and his type, they steal, kill, and destroy. So what we're about to have is Abimelech and the Shechemites Though they were once partners, a few years later, they are enemies, and there is war. There is conspiracy on both sides. Verse 30 to 49 details these things, and the result is verse 49. That's what we need to pay attention to. I know it's a lot of material. Let's catch these highlights. Verse 49. The people of Shechem are pushed back by Abimelech and his army, and they gather into a great tower. This is not the great tower that we just read about at the end of our story. This is a different great tower. 
They're trying to escape, but they are found out. And Abimelech approaches, and he sets fire to the tower, and all of the people perish. Women, children, men, they all perish. So the first half of Jotham's parable has come to life. The Shechemites literally are burned by the bramble. Those who sought shade under him have now reaped their consequence for doing so. So God has used wicked man to judge Israel in this case. Remember, this is the book of Judges, and time and time again, God has raised up a ruler to save his people from their enemies. And in this case, if you think about it, he's done the same thing. Abimelech has destroyed God's enemies. And God has used now this man, the bramble, to save his people. The Canaanites who conspired are now dead. And this is just like what we've seen up until now, hasn't it? Think of all the judges we've encountered so far. The last one of which, of course, was Gideon, who, def- who defeated the Midianites. So for you and I, we can think that bad guys are all unified, but they are not. This illustrates this point. Notice, especially at the beginning of that previous section, verse 23, why did these two parties, why did they go at each other? God was behind it all. Remember why God raised up Pharaoh? He raised up Pharaoh for his glory. He does the same thing here. Why do these two parties war against each other? Verse 23, God sent a spirit of ill will. And he sends the spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And why did he do this? Verse 24, why is God doing all of this? That the crime done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might be settled and their blood be upon Abimelech. So God, in one fell swoop, is going to punish his people's enemies and he's going to punish the man who killed Jeroboam's 70 sons. God is in control this entire time. Perhaps as you're going through this, it's like, well, there's just bad guys on one side and bad guys on another side. Where is God in all of this? Verse 23, he's sovereign. In fact, it's him that's causing the division between these two peoples. And for you and I, one application would be, we have no need to take vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. So what's the job of the Christian? God will see to it. God will simply give his enemies over to their evil desire. In fact, God will use evil to punish evil. And then another evil will punish that evil. And God sits in the heavens, Psalm 2, and he laughs because he's in control. Fourthly, verses 50 to 57 Justice for fools, our fourth heading, justice for fools. I'm going to read this section. This is the one we started with. I'll read a verse or two. 
Remember, Abimelech went to Thebes. This is after he set the first tower on fire and he saw victory. And he goes and he sees another one, verse 51. And it's just like the last time. These, this other group of people, not all of the enemy was finished yet, they go into another tower and there's men and women, presumably children also in this strong tower. And Abimelech is coming upon it and he thinks, hey, this is great, they're all gathered in one place. I'm going to do it again. And yet, a woman, out of nowhere, first time we've seen her in the Bible, she's up there somewhere with a great millstone, and she drops it. I wonder, you know, was she, was she aiming? How high up was she? Did she know what she was doing? Did she try to do it? We aren't told. Surely she wanted to kill him. Surely she knew that this man wanted to set fire to the tower. But she drops it and it crushes his head. Interestingly, as Alistair Roberts has observed, Abimelech killed 70 men upon the one stone. Remember that? The 70 men are killed and they're laid upon one great stone. And now it's one great stone that kills Abimelech. That's justice. That's justice. It's perfect justice. And this is how Abimelech is memorialized. Remember, he does not want to be remembered for a woman having killed him. And he goes out of his way and he says, Hey, hey, armor bearer, come over here. I don't want anybody to know about this. And his armor bearer thrusts him through and he dies. But of course, who killed him? It's the woman who killed him. And this is how he is memorialized. The fact that he said it only set it in stone. If Abimelech were a statue, he would be with torch in hand, reaching over to a tower. And at just that moment, a millstone would be cracking over his head. And then the statue would show a woman glancing over, presumably smiling, as his skull is crushed. He is memorialized in this way. In fact, 2 Samuel talks about this. Later in the Old Testament, when speaking about a wartime scenario, this is how Abimelech is remembered. Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam? Was it not a woman? who cast a piece of millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? All of Israel knows this. That's justice. The thing he did not want to happen, happened. It's perfect justice. Fifthly, good news for fools. Good news for for fool. We've heard this story before. Genesis 3:15, there's that promise. After Satan leads the woman into sin and she rebels against God, as the man rebels against God, Satan is cursed and part of that curse is you may bruise his heel, the seed of the woman. But, the, but, but that, that woman whom you just despised, that woman whom you just foiled, it will, be, it will be her child who will crush your head. And 
When we look at justice, for instance, think of the patent case. No justice came upon that particular people, at least not right away, at least not poetically like this. You would think that strategically, perhaps, that whole tribal people who killed the Gordons would have received justice, but they received no such justice. They go about, they go about their daily lives, and they, they die of natural causes or whatever it is they would have died of. But, but God here has given us justice in other cases, even in the world today, even in the news today, sometimes we do not see justice, at least in this lifetime. So what gives? Why do we get it here? Why do we get it here and we don't get it elsewhere, or at least all the time? I think the details here are pressing in this ultimate hope for us. You and I have heard this message before. Jesus Christ will come and he will crush the skull of Satan through his death. He will bear the punishment that we deserve. And the only way that Satan is defeated is by Jesus going to the cross. And it's Satan that did that thing. Jesus crushes his skull and he's the seed of of the woman, and it's almost as if in the midst of judges, this is just chaos. Bad guys are fighting bad guys. There's hardly a good guy in sight. What do we make of this? Well, the only thing I know to make of it is Genesis 3.15. And sometimes I think that when we're pressing for application in stories like this, the only thing that you and I can say to one another is, well... Satan gets, his, Satan gets his skull crushed, doesn't he? And, that, and in that we rejoice. I don't know what else to apply to us, really, in this story. The only thing I can do is say, it happened again. Remember, at the end of Judges, everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. It's just chaos upon chaos upon chaos. And in the middle of it, in the middle of the chaos, we get the gospel promise again. The gospel promise again, and it's, and it's done in a way that's poetic, perhaps. A woman drops it, and it couldn't be more clear, could it? The gospel, in this way, it, it strikes us. It's sort of folly, isn't it? It's sort of like a folly. She just drops it, and it crushes his head, and that's what Paul later describes the gospel as. He calls it foolishness in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The message of the cross is foolishness in the eyes of the world. To those who are perishing, it's foolishness. But to us in this building, in this room, to us it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. And he goes on, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So Paul says that in the eyes of the world, this is a foolish chapter. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God to those who believe. My question for you is, do you believe this? This is unbelievable, isn't it? 
Again and again and again, the woman crushes the bad guy. Is anyone worse than Abimelech? Not yet in Judges, I don't think. And it's him, sort of this antichrist figure who is crushed. God may not execute justice immediately. Patton did not always see justice executed immediately. But God has given us a promise, and he's given us pictures like Judges chapter 9 that we may put our rest, put our hope in this, because sometimes we do not see justice. You watch the news the last few weeks, you're hoping for some justice, right? You may not see it in this lifetime. But on the last day, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and God. And in that, we can rejoice. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the gospel and the way that you have put the Bible, fashioned the Bible like you have. It's a beautiful book, and we rejoice in it. And we rejoice and the hope that Christ brings to us. And I pray that as we see the beauty of this book, that we will marvel at Jesus Christ and that we will worship him for all he's worth. And I pray that you encourage us when we long for justice, when we long for peace and it does not come, that we put our confidence that one day Christ will return and he will wipe away every tear and he will calm every fear and he will bring ultimate and perfect justice. It's in his name we pray, amen.